Hello and welcome to Orange Source Wall. My name is Elvis and as always, I'm your host. So, this is going to be the first episode in a long time where I've actually written out a script and hopefully gotten my thoughts out in an order that makes coherent sense and not something that I have to cobble together after the fact in editing. This is going to be kind of a long episode, so let's just head on in with some news. Starting off with some of the more tragic news to come out this week, which is the unfortunate passing of esteemed editor and writer Denny O'Neill, perhaps best known for his iconic and definitive runs on both Batman and The Question, where he introduced concepts, characters, and plots that would shape both their histories in comics, but also their perception in pop culture forever. Not to mention his seminal and groundbreaking tenure on Green Lantern, Green Arrow. There really is no understanding the impact he had both on comics, but also on readers themselves. In the wake of his death, so much outpouring has come out, not from just his colleagues, but also the incalculable amount of fans who have said that his work woke something in them, touched them, and otherwise shook their foundations in the most heartening ways, something that they needed at the time. It's wonderful when a writer and a creative force in general can instill that sense of comfort and awareness in an audience, and it was bittersweet to see that amount of love as it was to see longtime collaborator Dennis Cohen pledge his condolences and pay tribute as well. His mark in comics will stand the test of time and will be able to touch readers for ages to come. Rest in peace, Denny. Here's a moment of silence for you. Moving ahead on a less tragic note, it is also a shame to have to report that Mad Magazine mainstay and another of the most notable members of the Gang of Idiots, Al Jaffe, is retiring. At age of 99, I would have to say that it is a retirement well-earned and deserved. I mean, I might have thought he was already long gone at this point, but the fact that he spent most of a lengthy lifetime producing amazing fold-ins, each more increasingly fantastic and elaborately clever than the last, was a testament to his creative spirit. And as a fan of Mad since I was a kid, it is a somber moment. But I hope he enjoys the peace that retirement can give, and that he knows how grateful so many readers were and are at his contributions and how much we will miss him and his spirit. Mad Magazine will never be the same. And before we continue on to something really heavy, there's something I want to know about how Marvel Comics has apparently decided the best way to set themselves apart from DC and their recent initiatives to release digital copies of their ongoings a day early on Tuesday and to step away from distributing through Diamond is to create special variant covers to promote the idea that they're holding the line at releasing on Wednesday, which is nothing. It's it's not even a concept. It's a nothing idea to promote. And as if to underline the emptiness of that gesture, the covers themselves are blank with only impact font text on them saying on sale Wednesday. Which when you have some of the best artists producing some of the best cover art of their careers at your disposal, it's a really silly move. There's just no meaning to it. And yes, when I say best artists creating best cover art, I do mean Alex Ross and Immortal Hulk because his run of covers are a magnum opus and these variant covers are a disgrace to the concept of covers. Marvel should be ashamed. They really should be. And finally, we have some really heavy and intense news and I hope you all bear with me because this is not a topic that I normally cover and am not at all well versed in and it would be a disservice to the topic itself to claim otherwise. And I hope that doesn't seem that way because it seems as though another wave of predators, groomers, and sexual harassers have been revealed through the comics industry over the past few days in what is becoming an incredibly disturbing common event. And it sickens me. It really does. It, it twists my gut and it made me nauseous to even write this part of the script and to say it again out loud right now. The fact that there is enough bile and poison in this industry to have this continually happen almost monthly it seems, it should be unthinkable but time and again it remains something that fans and most frighteningly up 
up-and-coming creatives, especially women, have to be mindful of constantly. And that's not what any professional industry should be like for people who are coming into it. So to hear creators like Warren Ellis and Cameron Stewart and so many others have made the community such a vile and toxic place like that where being mindful is necessary is, is disgusting. It really is. And I wish I could say I was shocked, but I think the last time I was really shocked about this kind of thing was when I first heard the stories about Julie Schwartz. That was like being a kid and learning all about the unsavory stuff Walt Disney was a part of and was into. Now I'm always just horrified and angered. And I hope that those they've harmed and traumatized are well because this kind of harm, this kind of trauma, the scarring emotionally and mentally can be so far reaching and it's not something that you can take lightly at all. And all we can really do is spread the word and offer support and offer enlightenment and be able to foster an environment and a community that allows these people to not really hide or be able to perpetuate these sick and just disgusting tendencies of theirs to to harm others around them especially people who they have power over i just i wish all these victims and all these people coming forward the best because it is a tough road and they're really brave at that and that's all i really can say it's it's such a such a nauseating topic anyway let's head on to what i read this week we have first off death metal number one after so long and with so much build-up and self-perpetuated hype you might think that this is maybe where snyder is going to pull out all the stops and make something that is going to be unforgettable and he does but in the worst ways possible. It's basically everything that was bad about metal being brought up to the umpteenth level but without any of the easygoing charm that metal could have at times. And with the most insane amount of self-wank this side of Bendis' stranglehold on the Ultimate Universe. Like you have to really really care about what Snyder and his groupies have been doing for the past two years to make any sense of this. Or else it's impenetrable. And the example I like to use in contrast to this is Infinite Crisis because that was an event that also had a huge amount of buildup and tie-ins and wank but still kinda could be read as its own thing. The event itself had a narrative that it followed and death metal really doesn't. It's just playing catch up and repeat with everything metal, Batman, Superman, Justice League, and all the other series that have come in its wake have done. And it's a slog. It's dull. It's grating and it's a chore. And while it might sound ridiculous, Snyder has gotten even worse at being the silly, corny, and goofy writer he desperately wants people to think he is. While Metal occasionally hit a good groove with its intentionally over-the-top tone, Snyder can't help but trip over himself with similar gags here. From having Sergeant Rock talk about eating turd sandwiches for an entire page, the first page in fact, to over explaining the concept and gag of a T-Rex Batman in the most overtly meta way possible, it's lacking any sincerity or confidence. Like if you're gonna be silly and goofy and corny, then be silly and goofy and corny. You can't have a joke there and then spend the entire page self-consciously explaining why it's such a ridiculous joke. But instead, Snyder sucks all air out of the room and it's incredible because he's the one putting the air in it. It's lackluster in a way that only the most overproduced and overthought stories can be. And for that, two thumbs down, I'm not quite sure I'm even going to follow this event. It doesn't really have anything interesting going on. Things it does set up are bland and uninspired and honestly there are better things to read. Next up we have Stranger Adventures number two. There's nothing really to say about this that I didn't say with the first issue which is basically that Tom King seems to be playing it safe except like too safe. It's a cardboard experience with no real texture or energy to it. It apes and mimes moments of passion, excitement, romance, and intrigue, but King's incompetent tone and story structure undermine them at every turn. It's not as bad as when King actively writes something insanely dumb, but it lacks any sense of urgency or enticement. The flashbacks on Ron's storyline clashes and conflicts rather than contrasts with the present day mystery story in a way that robs both of impact. And most of the issue was wasted on Tom King trying really hard to sell maybe the only thing he knows of Mr. Terrific, which is right up his demo. 
in that he overplays its hand in order to make it seem like he knows about a character when he probably only skimmed the Wikipedia page. It's not an issue that has any energy, and I'm spending more time even trying to talk about it than it could give any reader. There's every chance that it might get real Tom King levels of dumb later on, but as of now, it's the most vanilla series he's written in a long time. It's not something that seems to have a lot of depth, but it's also not something that is anyway exciting or fun or pulpy and it's trying to kind of do both and maybe it's just more than Tom King can handle and I could completely believe that. Overall, two thumbs middle. Moving ahead, we have Metal Men number 7, the best metal tangent comic that DC has released this week because after the somewhat middling unoriginality of number 6, this was a fun return to form. The form where the Dio's take is able to balance the more unsavory elements she's trying to use the Metal Men concept to explore and the more traditional metalman hijinks and lunacy that fans should expect. And it's about as good as it ever is. It's not hefty or heady, but the time allotted to a silly side mission with Will's new metal mammals, or rather Didio's version of the gas gang, is fun and adorable and appropriately humorous. It's a solid bravery issue that is needed after the attempts at starker drama the previous Tina focus issue was centered around and pretty much fumbled at. Not only that, but it's maybe the first time we actually see the new actually sentient metalmen and how they are like as characters rather than them just being shadowily on the sidelines. The back and forths they have about the virtues of being really advanced to now being actually reborn is delightful and shows how soft and simply comforting and silly the team can be and still are. It makes me really want to see more of them as well as the smaller implications that maybe Magnus isn't as much of a cold-hearted bastard after all, it sets down a foundation for the series and how we can probably reach the end zone now that it's been given the chance to finish. Now we're going to see a recapitulation of the Metalman and a restoration of what Didio spent the first couple of issues kind of tearing down. And I feel like that's something that Didio does a lot. It's something that he's always kind of said, and I know I repeat this a lot whenever I review a Didio comic, is that he believes that a hero is kind of only as good as as much suffering they've gone through. And I feel like the first two issues or so of the series really do take a hammer at the Metalman concept. And and now we're starting to see what makes them kind of flourish and I'm all for that. I'm really excited. It's a solid reassessment issue and a better return from hiatus issue than number six was for sure because it drops us back into what the series is trying to do tone-wise and for all the better. Overall, two thumbs up. I had a lot of fun with this. I can't believe we're in the second half of this Max series and I just can't wait to see what happens. After that, we have Hawkman number 24. It's an entire issue of Carter and Shaira being the crap out of people. I mean, that's literally it. They talk about the relationship for a couple of panels, but it's not the central point at all. It's nice, it helps sell the idea about what this second season of issues was even about, but it's a brawl for 18 pages. So overall, two thumbs up just for that. The next issue should be the cap off for this season, and the final page of this makes that case. So I can't wait. Hopefully it won't be like Lester. This season has been really rocky and really shaky, but... Honestly, this was a nice, if very airy, very fluffy beginning of the end, as long as it's able to hit a great emotional tone. So fingers crossed for that. And lastly, we have the question of Deaths of Vic Sage number three. This is maybe the most befuddling issue of this miniseries yet, but that doesn't mean that it's any less effective, because boy howdy is it effective. What makes this a starkly different issue than the previous ones is that while the second issue was very much focused on its own time period and telling its own small vignette about Wild West question, this one goes about itself in a way that's kind of a half measure. I don't know if it's because Lemire realized he needed to start wrapping up or that he hadn't really started seeding things out as neatly as he wanted because it feels too juddery and I think it wastes and pulls away from the idea of a pulp nori private eye question a bit too much. It never really gives itself into it and it keeps drawing attention away whenever it starts to get really engrossed in the concept. 
It's still a really exciting and fun issue, but it seems to be that despite the overarching plot really grabbing and putting its nails into everything. Which is a shame, because the final page is more to make up for it. If there's anything that Lemire has able to nail, it's Vic's two-fisted inner nature, and it's a beauty to behold, it really is. So honestly, even though it's not the most solid issue, it's still a really, really entertaining read, and I can't wait to see what happens next, and it's just exciting. I think that Lemire, when he just lets himself get carried into the atmosphere, is able to create such stellar work, and obviously Dennis Cohen is knocking it out of the park in just the most just atmospheric kind of way. So overall, one thumb up, one thumb middle. Alright, moving on to what I watched this week. We have Stargirl Episode 5, Doctor Midnight and Our Man. Which was maybe not as good as the previous episode. But this one actually surpassed some of my expectations and worries. The biggest of which was that this show's version of Death Chapel and her becoming Dr. Midnight for the show in general wasn't that optimistic looking for me. Nothing about the character in the show so far left me enthused or excited about seeing more of her. The episode did turn that a bit around though, placing her really plucky optimism as a contrast to the more modern age style pragmatism of Courtney and Yolanda and making her seem less overbearing and grating and more necessary to capturing a good spirit for the team. It also helps that she's balanced out by the AI of Charles McKnighter that resides in his old goggles. It's a complete and utter ripoff of Spider-Man and his dark suit from Homecoming, but fun is fun, so I give it a pass. And the dynamic that she, in her really, really overjoyous and overenthusiastic state, has with this just completely deadpan computer voice is delightful. I, I found it charming and fun, so Our Man's half of this episode is a little less good. I feel like bringing everything to roost like they did with Rex and Rick in the way that they are in the show robs a lot of impact from their respective dynamics and arcs in the comic. And Rick in general feels like the most CW character so far, or rather WB11 slash the picks, because his intro scene in this episode could be straight out of Wintry Hill. It's very soapy, it's very melodramatic, and it's not really that well acted. He, the actor himself is lackluster and the character thread and the character dynamics he has with others are just uninspired. The only other thing of note is that we're continuing to follow Brainwave Jr.'s detachment from his jock life, which is actually pretty engaging. It's more engaging than they're trying to make Our Man here. Like, Our Man is just given so much cliches that we're supposed to really feel for, but it's just one too many for me, and it feels very forced and very lazy. Meanwhile, Brainwave Jr., it's a well-worn and well-traveled idea, but I think that the actor is really selling it a lot more, and I am actually excited to see that the payout to that in the Brainwave Jr. episode is going to be written by James Robertson again, so fingers crossed for that. Overall, not a great episode, but definitely showing some steadiness, and maybe that will be enough for a great foundation to see where the series is going. Overall, two phones middle. Anyway, that's it for I watch this week. Next week, we're going to be seeing the premiere of Doom Patrol. Obviously, I won't be able to review it the day it comes out, but I will be on it the week after, so I can't wait for that. And as always, I want to say thank you everyone out there for sending a question, comment, or topic. It means so much to me. Hopefully, I can get back to that again because I really miss it. It really does mean the world to me, and I'm just so grateful every time. And if anyone out there has any of their own, you can always find me on Twitter at T-H-E underscore S-N-I-C-K-M-A-N. I will give a shout out to Cover Service Show at D-O-T-E-M-C-E-E. Please check them out. They're amazing. Give them all the support you can. I just want wish everyone out there a happy Father's Day weekend and I hope you and your families are still staying safe and have a great week and see you again next time.